Thank you for listening to the Proclaim Church Sermon Podcast. Proclaim's mission is to make Jesus known through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. For regular meeting times, more information about our beliefs, or other information, check us out at proclaimkc.org. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, if you... Um want to use one of the Bibles on the tables. It's page 575. 575? Or if you brought your Bible with you, that's great. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all who may be condemned, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You can have a seat. Let's pray as we get started in this passage this morning. Lord God, we uh, confess and we know from your word that, that we're unable to know, uh, to really know you. We're unable to please you. We're unable to love you without the work of the Holy Spirit in us, in our hearts, in our lives, transforming our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. God, your spirit leads us into truth. We're unable to understand your word outside of the work of your spirit and understanding the gospel itself. Lord, would you give us desire to know your truth? May we meditate on your word day and night. Lord, would you, would you lead us to your word? Would we know that it's the only bread that will truly satisfy all the hungers that we have? It's the only water that will truly quench our thirst, God. Lord, would you give us a passion for you and for your word? Would you give us understanding as we come to it, both this morning and as we come to it in our own times of reading it throughout the week? Lord, we pray all this in your name. Amen. So Silas my son Silas, he loves to watch football. 
I mean, he really he loves to watch football. See, there you go. He loves to watch any sport, really, but, but uh, he loves to watch football. And, and um, he's my kid who will sit in any game, I'm watching any game, and he'll sit there with me and, and just watch the whole thing. In fact, he's fallen asleep in front of the TV watching, you know, sitting cross-legged, watching a basketball game, and just falls forward and falls asleep because he's just zoned, so zoned in to the game. And really, he's picked up the basics of football pretty well. He knows when we have the ball. We, he knows when our team doesn't have the ball. He knows when we score or when we get a first down. And he's picked up the basics pretty quick. But with the Chiefs' success last fall, uh, Ryder has also been wanting to watch the games along with me and, and watching the whole game, not just watching like two minutes of it and then, and then running off to do something else. And that has come with a whole lot of questions um, that he has about what's happening in the game a level deeper than just, you know, we've scored or that's a turnover or whatever. And questions like, you know, why is that a penalty? Or why did we punt? Or why aren't we passing the ball? Why would we run ever? You know, like questions like that. I've watched football for so long, I've forgotten, you know, just how complicated of a game it really is. The details of football is actually quite, quite complicated. And, and as we're sitting there watching and as he keeps asking questions, I'm realizing, oh, wow, that, like I, I take these things for granted as I'm watching a football game. Even still, even though I've watched so many football games, even though I know so much about the game of football, there's still so much that I don't know about different defensive formations, different motions that happen for the snap, all sorts of different things that go on in the game that I still have no idea about. And so when you're watching a game, what do you have? You have like in-game commentators that tell you some of those things that are happening. My, one of my favorites uh, recently is Tony Romo because he just knows so much about the game. He can call the play that's happening before it even happens. And he, and he explains why that's the play that's going to be called. Uh, it's amazing. In fact, if he quarterbacked as well as he commentated, maybe the Dallas Cowboys would have had a little bit better success over the last 10 years or so. I was hoping for more of my Dallas fans to be here, so that would really fall well, that joke. Um, but anyway, but even with, with commentators, even commentators, sometimes they don't know what's happening on the field because it's just so complicated. My point, my point is this, all that, all that is to say, that there is much in the Bible that's very, very clear. You come to Scripture and you come to the story that the Bible tells, there's a lot that, that is very easy to pick up. The basics are simple. God created everything, but man sinned and evil spread. God raised up a people for himself, but those people continued to rebel against him. And so God actually came to earth in Jesus who lived the perfectly sinless life that we are unable to live, and yet man continued to sin, and man killed Jesus. But God actually used that death as a means to forgive the very ones who have sinned and rebelled against him. And Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death, and ensuring his promise that he will return one day and when he returns, he will defeat evil once and for all and raise his people to be with him for eternity. The basics of scripture 
are pretty simple. I just said it in 45 seconds, right? But the Bible is a big book. If you've ever read the Bible cover to cover, you know there's a lot going on in there. And some of the things you read on some pages can be confusing, right? I mean, has anyone ever read something in the Bible and gone like, I have no idea what I just read, right? Okay, I, I mean, if, like some of you guys, I need to talk to you because you didn't raise your hand and I, we need to have a conversation because there's a lot of things I don't get in here. Maybe you can explain it to me. So we have people, we have people who preach and teach and write commentaries on the scripture and that is helpful for us. But there are still times when even some passages stump the best, the brightest of the experts, the smartest of the scholars. And this morning, we have one of those kinds of passages. One of those passages where the smartest of the guys go, you know what, there's some things in this passage that like, I'm just really not sure what that is actually referring to, what that's actually talking about. But... The great thing about this passage is what is most important in it is actually quite clear. Just like in the Bible, the things that, that are really, truly essential, the things that are most important are very, very clear and self-evident. So let me read these first two verses to you again. It says, now concerning the, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, so we're talking about Jesus coming back the second time, and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So ironically, the whole section that we are looking at today is meant to clear up some confusion that's happening for the Thessalonians about Jesus's return. And I'm sure that it cleared it up for them but it leaves our heads scratching a little bit on some of the details. There's some things that Paul says in this passage where you get the idea that there's some conversations that he has had with the Thessalonians personally that he's referencing that we just don't know about. We, don't, we, we weren't there at that moment to understand what he's referring to. But, but here's what I want you to understand about confusing passages in general, and about what Paul is saying here to the Thessalonians, particularly about Jesus' return. And it's the bottom line of our, of our whole sermon. Here it is. It said, don't fear. What's important is clear. Don't fear. What's important is clear. It rhymes. You like that. I know. I know. You're going to make fun of me, but you like it. Um, don't fear. What's important is clear. And that's true for this passage. And that's what Paul's saying to them. Hey, hey guys. Hey, Thessalonians. Like, you're worried, you're alarmed, you're shaken, but you don't have to be. Let me clear this up. What's really most important is clear. And that's true for most every passage. That's true for, I will say, boldly, that's true for every passage in Scripture. Paul doesn't want them to fear about Christ's return because they don't need to. As believers, they do not need to have a single bit of fear because the most important pieces are clear about it. And we believe that the Bible is sufficient for all that we need for salvation and for living life as a Christian. That, that anyone, any believer can come to God's word and just read it for themselves 
And through the natural faculties that God has given us, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can understand sufficiently everything that, that we need to know in order to have salvation and in order to live a life for Christ. We can know that. We don't need anyone else. We need the Holy Spirit and God's word. That's it. So what do we do then with these tricky passages? Well, I think we ought to avoid a few things when we come to tricky passages in Scripture. We want to avoid developing essential doctrines primarily based on passages that are confusing. All right? Avoid developing essential doctrines, doctrines that we would say are foundational, that are really, really important to us, avoid developing them based on passages that are confusing. Don't, don't look in the dark for something you can easily find in the light, right? We want to avoid becoming divisive to the church and with other believers over these kind of tricky passages. There's no, there's no sense in taking a passage that we all admit is, you know, it's confusing, and then becoming divisive about something that we don't even actually, aren't even 100% sure about. Last, I would say, thing we want to avoid is we want to avoid losing sight of the gospel. Above all else, we want to avoid losing sight of the gospel because we're excited about curiosities, okay? We want to avoid losing sight of, of the most important thing because of peripheral curiosities. So what can we do when we come to a passage like this? Well, we can, uh, we can uh, look at it, and we can ask ourselves a couple of questions. We can ask ourselves what can I know about God from this passage? Okay, there's some unclear things, but what can I know? Second, we can ask, what can I know about the world from this passage? About others, about what's going on around me? And then third, what can I know about myself from this passage? And those are the questions I want to ask of this passage this morning. And Paul's purpose in writing this letter, this, this section, I mean, and a major part of his purpose in writing the whole letter is to clear up confusion about Jesus' return. Primarily, as verse 2 says, so that they won't be shaken, so that they won't be alarmed, so that they won't be afraid. That tells me this, that if you're a believer and your interpretation and your understanding of this passage causes you fear or anxiety, you are not understanding this passage correctly, right? It seems from the second verse, or second half of verse two, that there are rumors that are going around, or Paul at least expects there to be rumors that are going around, that he is teaching, either in his words or in his letters, that Jesus has already come and that they've missed it. And he says, no, 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 no. That's, that's not the case. That's not the case. Let me tell you why. Don't despair. And you can understand if you were the Thessalonians and you were experiencing extreme persecution for following Christ and you knew that Jesus was going to return, you might go like, oh my goodness, 
You may be susceptible to that deception. Oh my goodness, Jesus already returned. We missed it. That's why this is so hard. What are we going to do now? We have no hope. And so Paul says in verse three, he says, let no one deceive you. And he cites two events that need to happen first as evidence that Christ has not returned. First, the first event he calls the rebellion. And the second, he calls uh, the man of lawlessness being revealed. And here's where it begins to get complicated, right? It's not entirely clear what either of these things are exactly from the text. The word for rebellion here is where we get, it's the same uh, Greek word we get the word apostasy from. Apostasy is the abandonment of religious belief. So it could refer to people who are just against God in some way. People who, there's just, there's just a big group of people who are just opposed to God, period. Or it could refer to, perhaps more likely, it could refer to people who said they were with him and then now oppose him. So this rebellion, whatever it is, is going to happen first. And then second, this man of lawlessness, it seems to indicate a real, actual person, a figure in human history that will exist and will personify this opposition to God. And Paul gives us a few more details about who this person is or who he might be, but it's still incredibly unclear even with them. So let's look at them. Let's see what he says about him and see what we can kind of figure out. Paul first calls him the son of destruction. Now that phrase, son of destruction, could mean that he's the one who will do the destructing, or most likely it's a Hebrew idiom that actually refers to him being the one who will be destroyed. And that would be my, uh, what I believe is what the passage is saying, is that it, he is actually referring uh, to him as the one who will be destroyed, particularly because later in the same passage, it talks about Jesus destroying him when he comes. Okay? So he says in verse four then that this figure, this man of lawlessness will not only oppose God, but he'll actually oppose, look at that, every other so-called God. Like all other things that people call God or set up as God, that this man of lawlessness will oppose all of them. And he'll do it to such an extent and he'll do it with such success that he will actually take his seat, it says, in the temple of God and proclaim himself as God, as if he is God. He will set himself up as the one true way that supersedes all other religions. Now, this this again has a ton of difficulties, right? What what is meant by temple of God? Is, Is he referring to the physical temple in Jerusalem? Well, that doesn't seem likely. The Thessalonians live on a different continent, they're a church mostly of Gentiles. The, the temple, the physical temple in Jerusalem probably would be far from their thinking or their mindset. They wouldn't be thinking about that. It could perhaps be the temple as in referring to the church, the people of God, but, but it doesn't seem directed towards just Christians, right? It's, it, he's going to oppose all other beliefs, so it seems directed towards the whole world. I think most likely Paul is using this reference, a reference that would have been understood to symbolize what this man is actually about. The Thessalonians would have readily understood the idea of a temple to a God in, 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 in a place, 
because in their own city was a cultic temple to the Roman emperor of the time that had been set up to worship this Roman emperor because of the benefits that they were receiving as a city from, from the Romans. And so I think it, it would make more sense for them to understand that there would be a real-world leader in the same type as the Roman emperor, but worldwide, rather than just a city, that, that would set themselves up as to be worshipped. That would have been understandable to them, and it would have been very scary to them because they're not worship of that emperor in Thessalonica is what's causing them so much persecution. So verse 6 reveals that something is restraining this man, hindering him from being fully revealed until the appropriate time. And again, uh, who and what that is is hard to determine. Is it God that's restraining him? Is it the church that's restraining him? Is it the spread of the gospel that's restraining him? Is it maybe Satan, whom verse 9 says is the one who actually empowers the lawless one? All of those are ideas or theories that different scholars have had. At any rate, I think what's more important is, Paul says that this mystery of lawlessness, this this spirit of opposition to God, that the man of lawlessness will personify, this mystery is already at work in the world, he says. It was already at work in the days of the Thessalonians, and, and it's already at work in our day as well. Am I right? It just won't crescendo until that time when this man will be revealed. But it's already happening, and the man is going to use powers and signs and wonders to deceive those who are perishing and who do not love the truth. And God will allow this delusion to happen for those who have rejected him and for those who take pleasure in unrighteousness solidifying their fate. But when Jesus is revealed, that man won't stand a chance. Jesus' very breath will incinerate him. Now, there's lots more in and outs that we could talk about in this passage. We could go on, you know, lecture after lecture about what this means and what this could possibly mean and the different options and what what um, Greek words are and historical references and so on and so forth. But for the sake of time and mostly for the sake of the point of this text, I believe, what the point of the text is, I want to attempt to draw out a few conclusions that I believe are clear from the passage and I believe are comforting truths for us as believers because that is what Paul's purpose was, right? And if our purpose in coming to this text and preaching this text is different than Paul's purpose for this text, then we're not doing it right. We're not presenting it right. And so Paul's purpose is to comfort believers. And I hope that when I'm done, you as a believer are comforted. Uh, If you're not, then I haven't done a very good job at what I'm supposed to do. First, what's clear about God from this text? Man, the the first thing that's clear is this. Jesus will return. Jesus will return, believer. He will come back. It hasn't happened yet. And, and it will be obvious when it happens. There will, be no, there will be no mystery. There will be no mistaking whether or not Christ has returned. It will be clear. Perhaps more important than that even is this. Jesus wins. 
He not only will return, he's not returning to see if he can win. He's returning because he already has won. And to bring all of those who are his people who get to, to, to follow in the, the procession of his victory to go along with him. Jesus is Lord. He's the supreme authority. It's the theme throughout the book, and it's clear here as well. The man of lawlessness who is empowered by Satan himself uh, will be able to rise to such worldly power that everyone, you know, that, that, that people hail him as God, and yet, and yet he's destined for destruction. And yet the moment that Jesus returns, he's incinerated by Christ because it's not even a competition. Listen, even if God isn't the restrainer of verse six, we can still recognize that nothing that's happening, nothing that Paul is describing in this passage happens outside of the sovereign will of Jesus Christ, right? Outside of God's sovereign will. Another lesser point which I find interesting here is actually that, that this passage, though somewhat unclear, points to, points us to the validity of God's word and the validity, validity of this letter itself. Let me, under, let me explain. Certainly it's not definitive, but this section gives us internal evidence that this letter is genuine and not a forgery because... No forger would have written this letter and left out important details at the critical moments that explain what the world he's saying, right? Only someone who truly actually had conversations, real personal conversations with the Thessalonians, and then was writing a real personal letter to someone that they knew, would they take for granted that the reader knew these details, that were so critical to understanding the passage. Does that make sense? And so we actually have internal evidence here that, wow, this, this letter is most likely genuine. This is actually Paul writing a letter actually to the Thessalonians. What seems to us to be a mistake in his writing actually becomes evidence for its, its genuineness. Second, we can look at this text and we can ask ourselves, what's clear to us from this text about the world, about the world around us? Most of all, it tells us this, that we ought to expect the world to oppose God, that we ought to expect there to be a lot of people in the world who oppose God. Many people will rebel and many people will be deceived by the man of lawlessness and by this mystery of lawlessness that is already at work, And we shouldn't be surprised when people are rebelling even now, and we shouldn't be surprised when people who said that they were believers in Christ suddenly are like, no, I'm not a believer anymore, and then we look at their lives and we see them doing all sorts of unrighteousness, right? All sorts of things that God would say, no, you shouldn't do that. We shouldn't be surprised that people are taken by those things, because right here it tells us that it will happen. I think it also tells us, as believers, that we shouldn't do our theology with our Bible in one hand and with a newspaper in another. Does that make sense? We shouldn't do our theology with the Bible in one hand and, and CNN on at the same time. Like, turn the CNN off or the Fox News or whatever news you like to watch, I don't care. 
uh, turn it off uh, and read your Bible first, okay, With, without all of that stuff. Many people have thought that this or that person was the man of lawlessness throughout history, I, and a lot of people, and, and they've thought a lot of different people were that man of lawlessness, or the Antichrist, or whatever, as well as speculating on the times when Jesus was going to return. How many times throughout history has someone said, oh, well, Jesus is going to return now. Oh, this happened, now Jesus is going to return. Oh, this happened, now Jesus is going to return. And it hasn't happened yet. So let's stop doing our theology with our Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. I guess we don't really do newspapers so much now. Our iPad with our news app in the other hand. If God had wanted us to know the times and places, he would have said it more clearly. Point in fact, he actually said clearly that we would not know the times when it was going to happen. So why are we speculating on something that God said we wouldn't know? That makes no sense whatsoever. Paul's point isn't to feed our curiosities Paul's point in this text isn't to feed our curiosities, and it's not to create a timeline for us. It's to comfort Christians by clarifying who Jesus is and that he is victorious. And we are victorious because he is victorious. These truths ought not to frighten us, but give us confidence in Christ. And that leads us to the last question. What, what's clear from this text about myself? And the answer to this question really depends on one thing. There's really two different options, two different things that could be telling us about you or telling you about you. Two different people that are described in this passage, right? At, At the beginning of the passage, he is talking to the brothers, those who know Christ, those who have been adopted into God's family through Christ. They are Christians. They're part of the church. Those who have repented and believed in the gospel, the, the, the only way of salvation is through faith in Christ's work on our behalf. And these people will be gathered to Christ in the end. And so if you believe the gospel, if you've repented and you have, put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's you. And so you will be with Christ in the end. You will be with the creator of the world who who speaks and the world comes into existence, who speaks and Satan and the man of lawlessness are cast aside, who came and died for you. But there's a second kind of person as well. It's described at the end of the passage. There are those who are deceived. There are those who take pleasure in unrighteousness. There are those who do not believe and refuse to love the truth about Jesus, and thus they're not saved. Rather, they are perishing. Indeed, it says they are condemned. Now, you might say, what do you mean, Cody? What do you mean condemned? Jesus himself says in John 3, 16 through 18, this is what Jesus says. Listen, listen to these words, the words of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Most of us have heard that verse, but, but, but have we continued to read? It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name, the only name, the name of the Son of God. Guys, our default, our default is condemnation. Our default is opposition to God. Our default is lawlessness. And Christ came into the world to change that. Jesus didn't come to condemn anyone. We have already condemned ourselves. The responsibility for that condemnation falls squarely on our shoulders. And the responsibility for saving us from that condemnation falls completely and totally and squarely on Christ's shoulders on the cross. If you want to be judged on the merit of your life, then listen, the Bible says you will get condemnation every single time. If you want to be judged even a little bit on the merit of your life, the Bible says you will get condemnation every single time. The only alternative is Christ. We are men and women of lawlessness without Christ. We oppose God and we set ourselves up in his place. And Jesus, by his death, he provided a way of life. Romans 6.23 states it clearly, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And what must we do, do to be saved? Romans again tells us in chapter 10, 9 and 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not you, you are not Lord, you are not king, you are not the authority, Jesus is for your life, for everyone's life, for everything. Confess that with your mouth. Truly believe it and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved, it says. I think back to when I was 11 years old and God revealed himself to me and God broke through my hard heart as he has probably, I imagine, uh, broken through many of your hard hearts. And there's so many things at that moment that I had no idea about. I couldn't pick up this Bible and read it for five minutes without being completely lost, right? And yet the Holy Spirit came into my life and began to reveal the truth to me. And yet Christ came and did a thing in me and saved me. I knew what I needed to know by the Holy Spirit, that God created everything good, that we sinned, that I sinned. I brought condemnation on myself, and Jesus came into the world, and he took the just punishment that I deserved in order to justify me if I would repent and have faith in him. Listen, guys, the struggle, the struggles that come in life and the struggles that came in my life from that point for the last 25 years, they didn't always end in Super Bowl victories. The seasons of your life don't always end with a win, right? I mean, can anyone 
Resonate with that? Seasons of your life, they don't always end with the Super Bowl victory, with raising the trophy over your head and the confetti's coming down and yeah, we win. It doesn't happen. Sometimes families don't get back together. Sometimes people don't repent and conflict doesn't go away. Sometimes people never change. Sometimes, sometimes we don't change in certain ways. We don't get victory over those sins. And sometimes situations end in tragedy and we don't get any relief. Sometimes that happens. I'm sure that's how the Thessalonians felt reading Paul's letter. And we wonder why we have to go through certain struggles and sufferings or why things don't end well all the time. And, and I can't imagine how much more the Thessalonian church felt that and understood suffering. I can't imagine how confusing it must have been as they anxiously await Christ's return and they just experience this enormous persecution for having faith in Christ, for, not, for turning away from the idols that are surrounded them and turning to Jesus instead. But there's one more thing that is clear in Scripture, and it is this, that one day Jesus will return and he will set everything right. In Revelation, it gives us a clear glimpse into this future, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Don't fear, guys. What's important is clear. Don't fear, believer. What's important is clear clear. And I love that Christ, he knew, he knew that we would struggle with this. He knew that his followers would struggle when he was gone. And so what did he do? He sat in a room with his disciples and he took bread and he took juice and he said, look, remember, 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 remember. We get clarity in communion. We get clarity in the Lord's Supper about what Christ has done and what he will do. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that the bread, it represents Christ's body given for us. And the juice, it represents Christ's blood shed for us. And he says to do this, to do this, whenever we get together, do this because it proclaims the Lord's death until Jesus comes again. Until what? is described in 2 Thessalonians, happens. We get to do this to remind ourselves and to remind one another of what Christ has done. But then he says in that same passage, the last two verses, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so what I want to do right now is I want you to have clarity 
about where you are with Christ before we take communion. And if you would take some time right now and briefly examine your own life and your own sinfulness, bring those things to the Lord. Friends, if if you have been afraid, if you've been fearful, if you have been wandering towards lawlessness, wandering, pursuing unrighteousness, now is the time for you to come before the Lord and to confess that and to repent and to put that faith back in Christ and then take communion knowing that you are forgiven, period, because it doesn't depend on you, it depends on Christ. Let's take a moment to examine ourselves.